Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll spotlight a new pilot program at Lyric Opera that aims to create a new live music experience for people who are deaf or hard of hearing. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to talk about a new adaptation of an absurdist play from 1919. Later in the show, I'll catch up with best-selling author Carrie Mayer to talk about her new novel, which is set in 1970s Chicago. And I'll check in with the director of Engage Chicago to learn about the results of a new survey that explored racial equity in the city's arts landscape. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture. Rehearsals were in full swing this week as Lyric Opera worked on its new production of The Flying Dutchman. But there was some additional activity buzzing at the historic Opera House this past Tuesday. Lyric introduced a new pilot program that aims to make opera more accessible for people who are deaf or hard of hearing. The initiative is built around a piece of wearable tech called a sound shirt. The zip-up long-sleeve shirt utilizes haptic technology to create vibrations that correspond with the music being performed. So there are 16 haptic actuators, which is fancy speak for little motors. It's the same thing that makes your phone vibrate when you get a text or a phone call. This is Brad Dunn, Lyric Opera's Director of Digital Initiatives, explaining how the sound shirt works. What happens is we, we put seven microphones over the orchestra and we put four mics in, but we capture the sound of microphones for the sound shirt. It's sent to a computer, that analog data gets turned into, uh, it gets digitized and becomes touch data. And in the software, we actually, in the same way a sound engineer might mix a show, we're able to um, send different um, instruments from the orchestra, different orchestra sections to different zones on the shirt. So we're able to create a more nuanced experience so people can feel melody, counter melody, the different rhythms that you naturally have in classical music. The hope is that people wearing the sound shirts will be able to experience opera in a way that was never possible before. Reporters who attended Tuesday's launch event were able to try out the technology during a rehearsal. If you listen closely, you can hear the soft buzzing of my shirt in this clip. My upper arms tingled as the cellos and violins rose in volume. The timpani drum sent reverberations on my right hip. There's like a deep bass. Does that maybe yeah. go to a certain point on these? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I saw you taking pictures of the software. You should go back and look. You'll, you'll be able to see, you can match color-wise, where timpani versus bass is. So everything does go to like a different zone, unique zone. I was curious about one of the byproducts of this marriage between art and technology. Who makes the decisions regarding how the shirt is programmed to correspond with the performance? 
There's no formal process for that, but I, like I said, as I take feedback, like that's the most important thing when developing an experience or a product. And so the artistic staff has also given some feedback, but it's going to vary show to show. But Anthony Freud, our CEO, gave me some actually very helpful feedback artistically on the interpretation of the music into, into haptic, into touch sensation. So there is some interpretation there. We have to be careful to remember that we're not recreating the experience of hearing music because we're not. We're creating a new experience for people that can't hear music. The sound shirts were developed by the London-based company Cute Circuit. Dunn was introduced to the technology three years ago. I think going back far enough, it began as a product called the Hug Shirt, and they evolved it into a thing to be more all-encompassing, to create this experience, to let people feel music. And right as they were going to launch, it was the pandemic, <laughs> which is, uh, ended up being ideal for us because in the meantime, I, I, I moved organizations and I came to Lyric and thought this is actually perfect for what we do. So in a way, this technology could be used for any type of performing arts uh, for, sure. for music. I actually think it's any any context where there's musical performance, even recorded, you could see this being useful in nightclubs, but certainly all kinds of music, whether we're talking a rock concert or classical music, I think it's, I think it's actually equally applicable to all of them, to be honest with you. I think here, theaters, like, they have a chance to sort of build relationships with people over, over a period of time. We have subscribers, and even people who aren't subscribers, we just have people who just return over and over. So it does give us a chance to kind of create and provide this experience for people on a more regular basis. But I, I'm as excited about this technology. Obviously, I'm very excited for Lyric and proud of Lyric to have the courage to just dive forward right into this. But truthfully, for the field as a whole, Every, you know, I think that this technology is going to come down in price and I think it's going to start to scale. And I think that other organizations are inevitably going to be looking towards how to, how to bring this kind of experience. Rachel Arfa, the commissioner of the Chicago Mayor's Office for People with Disabilities, was at the press event. Arfa, who is deaf, is a big supporter of the project. She tested out a sound shirt last season. I had the opportunity to test it out. Um, through the performance of West Side Story, there was a team of signing English interpreters. Um, then I called Watch. But pretty, when I put out the sound shirt, it actually enhanced my experience by giving me tactile access to the volume and the, of the seekers and the different sound effects that I cannot hear on my own. So it was really, it, it changed the way that I can experience a production here at the opera. The program is being presented in a partnership between Lyric and the Mayor's Office for People with Disabilities. A limited number of sound shirts will be available for use at select performances this season, and there's no additional fee. As for the future, Dunn believes the program could expand. You know, we'll see, we'll see what the market wants and what the market will bear and what they're looking for, but we are prepared to scale it up to some degree if, if there's enough people that want to try them, yeah. Lyric Opera's first sound shirt performance will be on Sunday, October 1st at 2 p.m. You can find out more information at lyricopera.org. And a quick reminder, make sure to check out the program's website, theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. Also, my contact info's there. 
If you ever want to reach out with a comment or question, you can email me at gzydic at wdcb.org. You can also connect on Instagram or X, formerly known as Twitter. I have the handle at OnAirGary. Hope you're having a good Sunday morning. And everything is going to be... And everything is going to be... And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Morning. Good morning, Gary. Trapdoor Theater opened its 30th anniversary season this week with a new adaptation of Polish playwright Stanislaw Witkiewicz's The Pragmatist. Trapdoor describes the play this way, quote, in a setting that is at the same time a torture chamber, a chamber of the heart, and a chamber for a virtuoso recital, two former friends struggle for domination in an existential conflict. We've all been there. Jonathan, uh, <laughs> I think maybe a good place to start would be learning a little more about the, the person behind this work. Uh, what should we know about Witkiewicz? Well, Witkiewicz was an important Polish poet and playwright and painter of the uh, early 20th century. He died in 1939. He was obsessed with symbolism and anarchy in all his artistic uh, avenues. And the, the Pragmatist is quite an early play of his. It was written in 1919. And today we probably would say it's an absurdist play. It's a comedy of the absurd. Although it was written really 25 years before the absurdist movement got underway, which is really a post-World War II movement. So this was kind of a predecessor, a very, very influential play for, for that reason. The production sparkles with staging ingenuity, thanks to director Jego Dukic. But I have to say that the pragmatists will not be your cup of tea if you expect to make sense of it in any literal Way I would say, uh, you know, one key to it in the opening moments, and again at the end, we are told that the play has no recognizable structure except the form that this particular performance may take. Now, this hints at improvisation and spontaneity, but in fact, the play is carefully staged and carefully designed. So it's an example of thesis and antithesis, which is very much at the heart of Witkiewicz's style and technique in all his writing, not just his playwriting. Uh, you will think you recognize things, things which seem to be, say, typical domestic moments, only to have them shape-shift and change in front of your eyes and to your ears. There's one character, for example, with a very symbolic name, Mamelia, who is spoken of at different times as wife, as sister, and mother, without her actually taking any of those specific roles. Carrie? What are you uh, making of all Well, this? I think if you're going to try to make any sort of narrative sense, which is perhaps a, a, a fool's journey when you're talking about Vitkevich, it's essentially a battle between two men, Placidor and Von Tellick, and they seem to be in a battle for control over their own lives as well as some of the ancillary characters, as you mentioned, Mamaya. Placidor, uh, who is Placidor's mute but not deaf wife, if she primarily uh, communicates via dance and movement. And then this is a very movement-oriented piece. Uh, so it's not static in that sense. Now, Placidor is a bit more of a passive and reclusive fellow, at least when we first meet him. 
while Von Tellick, who kind of invades his home, it seems, or perhaps invades his dream space, it's not really clear, claims to have a job as the Minister of Poison. So he's a bit more bombastic and confident. And over 75 minutes, these two men compete with each other, with the people around them, including a character who is described as a mummy, who maybe is a, a zombie, we're not really sure, who apparently also had a past relationship with Von Tellick. These characters are sort of caught in the middle in trying to enact their own will on the proceedings. And this is a sort of physicalized style that both the director, Zeko Dukic, and Trapdoor have done quite a bit in the past. Uh, Dukic has his own company, Tuta Theater, in Chicago, which kind of followed some of the same paths as Trapdoor in looking at, as you said, Jonathan, what we might call absurdist work or avant-garde work, primarily from Eastern Europe. There is some cutting meta-commentary on the proceedings in this play provided by two characters who are known as gendarmes, and they kind of remind us that we are in a play. Although, again, it's unclear. Is this meant to be an actual world? Is it a dream space occupied at various points by all of these different characters? I couldn't tell you for sure. Uh, the title <laughs> seems to reflect in some ways perhaps a commentary on William James's philosophy of pragmatism, and I'll just be the first to tell you that's way above my pay grade. <laughs> but I did have to say, though, that as is often the case with Trapdoor, once I sort of relaxed, or I don't know if relaxed is the right word, but sort of allowed myself to enter into the moment-to-moment explorations, I, I found myself enjoying it. But I don't know that it'll be for everyone. It definitely resists any kind of straightforward narrative interpretation. And I, and I have to say to their credit that I think Trapdoor hangs, hangs very strongly on that aesthetic. They are one of the few companies in town that is not completely enthralled to any kind of narrative realism in their work. And I often find that they, they draw audiences who maybe aren't necessarily as interested in work that goes on it at other companies. So they have their they have their path and they're trotting it quite well. And I you know, these are very good actors and if I'm a bit confounded I don't know that that's a bad place to be. <laughs> but, no, um, no. You're gonna have to kind of find your own way, I think, of interpreting what is going on right. here. Right. Now, uh, I, I want to pick up on, the, you mentioned the gendarmes, the right. two characters uh, who are, they, they describe themselves, they call themselves gendarmes, but they may in fact be guards at an asylum, True. given the sharp, mm-hmm. the sharp scenic design by Natasha Dukic, which offers quite literally individual cells across the stage, the stage in which mm-hmm. the key characters uh, often stand or sit, plus at either side constructions of vertical rope cords, which look like jail bars. Yeah. So that's a possibility, too. And, now, and, and know, it is. I, you know, the very first play that Trapdoor produced was The Madman and the Nun by Vitkovich, and they did a, another version of that a few years ago, which I saw called John Doe, and that is very much set in this world of, like, an asylum. You know, the title Madman and the Nun has, would, imply that, would imply that. And there is that power play between the imprisoned or the committed and the people who are caring for them, who's actually mad. So, yes, I think that, that your, your interpretation you know, might, might very well have some, uh, some, some good, some, some, some good basis there, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I will tell you, Carrie, one of the problems for literary types like you and like me <laughs> is that this version of The Pragmatists is an adaptation by one author of an English translation of the play by another right. author. So it's anyone's guess how close it may be to the Polish original, which I'm never going to be able to read. I do know that the original was written in three acts, 
while this one, as you mentioned, is a swift 75 minutes straight through. And I also know from a bit of online research of uh, productions over the last 20 years or so, not in Chicago, but other places, that this version is far different from others, uh, even down to the names of the characters and the number of characters. Right. So, you know, your best bet is to take this production at face value and enjoy Jacob Dukic's clever staging, stage staging, his clever staging, and his physically agile performers, the lead performer being Kevin Webb as the put-upon, very Chaplin-esque protagonist, <laughs> whom you already mentioned. The production also does some really interesting things with sound sampling. Yeah, I'm just uh, so, going to bring that up. Yeah, Right, so I want to mention the sound design is by Danny Rocket, and the music, original music, is by Natasha Bogayevich. The Prochmatists, uh, as Gary, as you noted, opened Trapdoor's Trap Doors 30th season, and it's very typical of them. It's a challenging, little-known Eastern Europe play by an influential writer. Yes. Now, they do have coming up in January Mother Courage and Her Children, which seems like a positively safe and mainstream choice <laughs> compared to what we usually get. But that's going to be directed by Max Truax, whose work has been a trapdoor in many, many times. And I, I, from what I know of his work, that this will probably not be your mother's mother courage, shall we say. <laughs> okay. Trapdoor Theater's production of The Pragmatist continues through October 28th. A couple things we want to get to before we wrap up this week. I think first, um, I did mention it on the, the show last week, but I didn't have a chance to ask you both about it. An announcement was made last week about a long-time uh, artistic director stepping down from a, a theater company. and it, This one feels like the, the last domino and what's been a, a continuing story of longtime theater leaders stepping down court theaters. Charles Newell is going to step down after next season. We still have B.J. Jones in Northlight, so okay. <laughs> it's not quite a complete <laughs> changing of the car. We still, we still have Rock Schulfer as executive director of the right. theater. But yeah, Charles but, Newell, yes. who's been at the at court theater for 30 years, is stepping away from the day-to-day running as artistic director, although my understanding, I, I actually just talked to him for a reader piece, that he will be, you know, serving in some kind of function for at least a year after leaving. And he's not leaving until the end of next you know, to the end of uh, the 2024 season. So he's still got some time there. Um, I think one of the things that, well, two things I think that for me, and I'd love to hear what your thoughts on this are, Jonathan, but I feel like under their, under his leadership, Court really did kind of reinvent the notion of what a classic can be with doing more contemporary American classics as well as just reinventing you know, ancient Greek dramas. I mean, we I think we both loved the the remounting of Gospel at Colonus. Well, remounting as it was originally at the Goodman when, in Chicago, anyway. And also, he did a lot to bring in the Hyde Park academic community to make uh, overtures to doing more community service and engagement within the South Side. They have a civic acting lab. Just a lot of things like that that I don't know were really hallmarks of court before Charles Newell took over. What are your thoughts on that, Jonathan? Well, he, you know, Court Theater is, is, a, is a very, very old theater. It's, it's, found, its foundational years were in the early or uh, mid-1950s when it was an outdoor summertime theater in, in the actual quadrangle courtyard uh, down at the university's original old campus. Uh, and by the time uh, 
Charles Newell took over as artistic director, it was already established in its uh, physical permanent uh, building with a with a, a, a traditional subscription season, the September to to spring till June season. Uh, Charlie did all of the things that you said. He found very clever ways to stretch and reinvent the sense of what is a classic, an American classic, a European classic. He also is the figure who took uh, court theater to uh, a national stage by uh, touring some of its productions uh, and uh, certainly exporting, if not entire productions, some of its production concepts, which were picked up at other theaters around the country, which is one of the reasons that court theater uh, won the Tony Award for Outstanding Regional Theater last year. It was a result of uh, many years of work and, and outreach and growth beyond the South Side, beyond the city of Chicago. And uh, Charles Newell, Charlie, as people who know him usually call him, right. uh, deserves uh, kudos for all of that, all of that effort. One more thing is, uh, Carrie, you had a, a pick. I do. I have a quick pick. This would be Revolution by Chicago playwright Brett Nevue at Red Orchid Theater, where he is an ensemble member. No, more recently, you may have seen news of Brett uh, for his uh, over twenty-year-old play that originated at Red Orchid. Uh, Eric LaRue, which is going to be at the Chicago International Film Festival. It was turned into a film directed by his good friend and Red Orchid colleague, Michael Shannon, who I think probably needs no introduction to most people who've been watching movies and television in the last few years. That one was a, Eric LaRue is a pretty dark play. Revolution is not. Revolution is a three-character play featuring three women, um, two young women and then an older woman, who are gathered behind... The, uh, the alley behind a strip mall. It's the uh, home of Revolution Haircuts, hence the title. And it's just one of those, you know, sort of shaggy dog, unlikely people gathering and revealing things about each other and about their lives. But I found it absolutely heartwarming, funny, quirky, um, and it features an absolutely stellar performance from longtime Red Orchid uh, veteran Natalie West. Some of you may remember her as Crystal from the old Roseanne show. She's this, she's the older woman who works at the Ross, who kind of invites herself in a way to this impromptu birthday party that the two younger women who both work at the hair salon are throwing. And over the course of, you know, cheap beer and liquor store candies and many other things, we learn a lot about their lives, but not in a way that feels contrived. This just felt like a very honest, off the cuff, and in a way, I think, kind of a reflection about how people learn to be with each other again after periods of isolation. So if you, as as I have, been dealing with seeing people you haven't seen in a long time, even now that we've been back out in public for a while, um, or if you just enjoy wonderful acting and, and just, as I said, sort of offbeat, but very relatable characters, and I think Revolution, which is running at Red Orchid, through uh, October 29th may just be the show you want to see. And if, if for no other reason, just an incredible reminder of how very, very treasured Natalie West is for our theater community. Keep an eye out for that. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, You're welcome, welcome as always. I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to The Arts Section.
A fascinating but little-known piece of women's history is the source material for the new novel, All You Have to Do is Call. The book shines a light on the efforts of a real-life organization known as the Jane Collective that operated in Chicago, helping women access reproductive care in the early 70s. Best-selling author Carrie Mayer created a cast of fictional characters to bring this somewhat forgotten story to life. All You Have to Do is Call is set in the years leading up to the landmark Roe v. Wade decision when abortion was illegal in most of the United States. A group of citizens that was affiliated with the Chicago Women's Liberation Union took it upon themselves to provide women with a range of reproductive health services. Mayor will be in Chicago later this week for an event at the bookseller in the Lincoln Square neighborhood. I caught up with her to learn more about her inspiration for All You Have to Do is Call. Did I read it was a public radio story in twenty eighteen in twenty eighteen that sparked something? Yes, it was indeed a public radio story, an NPR story I was listening to when I was on, on my way to meet a friend for a movie. I was listening to it in the car and they were talking about the women of the Jane Collective. And I just I just could not stop listening. I mean, it was like they did what and they did what? <laughs> you know, you know, the story of this group of women who were just like me, who, you know, with no special medical training, who learned to give safe, um, inexpensive abortions in the days before Roe just absolutely captivated me. And as soon as I parked the car, I looked to see if anyone had written about them in novel form yet, and it looked like nobody had. So I was just like, I just knew that I had to do it. It was, I, it just, it was one of those stories that grabbed me and wouldn't let go. And obviously, the very nature of what the Jane Collective was doing was very secretive. It had to be. And I know there have been some nonfiction books written about their work in recent years. But was there anything public about the, the Jane Collective out there in the years and decades after Roe versus Wade? You know, I think that as the need for illegal abortions faded in the years following Roe, you know, in, in 1973 and, and later, they the Jane Collective faded into our, our collective memory. I mean, I, this was in 2018 was the, certainly the first I had heard of them. And I would mention them, the Jane Collective and my idea to write about them to friends of mine. And really at that time, no one I knew had heard about them. I, you know, I have a couple of writer friends who live in Chicago and a couple of them had heard of them, but they really had, you know, largely faded to the background. And it really was, they started entering the news again a lot with Dobbs. And there were a couple of movies that were made about them in the last um, few years. But yeah, it was it was interesting. I, I, I feel really lucky that I got to write this novel. So you, you hear the story on radio and you start doing your own research. American women's reproductive rights are in a different place in 2018 than they are now. You referenced it. Did the Dobbs decision impact the, the final draft of the book? You know, the, the book was largely written at that point. I was in revising stages. And so, and I love revising novels. It's one of my favorite parts of the process. Um, so I think that, you know, I think that one of the opportunities writers have in the revising process is to kind of lean into certain themes, weave in maybe a couple more threads. And I guess I felt like I had the opportunity to kind of highlight some historical pieces that I might not have made quite so bright 
um, before Dobbs. You know, this was this moment in 1970 to 72, 73 was a moment of real hope for the women's movement. I mean, we had the Equal Rights Amendment on the table for a brief shining moment. We had the Child Care Development Act that passed both the House and the Senate and was vetoed by Richard Nixon. So there was, you know, and there were the there was the famous um strike for equality in 1970 in Washington, D.C., where, I mean, the the posters from that that march are really amazing. My favorite one is, don't iron while the strike is hot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it's just such great, great slogans and great, great language around this time. And, you know, so it was really a moment of great hope for change for, you know, for women and for for all people. And and so, yeah, I mean... (laughs) And we compare that to now. I mean, they, they made a lot of gains. But of course, this was also the moment when some of those hopes were jettisoned, you know, like Richard Nixon vetoing the Child Care Development Act, the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, still, it is technically ratified, but because uh, enough states have now ratified it, but it, it's in some legal limbo that's kind of complicated to get into now. So there's still work left to be done. The story of the, the Jane Collective is remarkable, compelling no matter when it was released, I think it's just yes. an interesting story. But from a reader perspective, just my opinion, but it it, it hits differently post-Dobbs, right? I, you know, I think it does, right? Because here we are in this moment where providers, you know, I think something that's important to say about the novel is that, it, and th- I was passionate about this aspect of it from the get-go, that it's really a novel about the providers of, of this service. This, um, and it wasn't just abortion that the Jane Collective offered. They offered, you know, pap smears and STD testing and even, even um, pregnancy testing, birth control counseling, and a wide variety of services. They were almost like a proto- Planned Parenthood, we might we might think of them as, um, but yeah, like, but they had to do it in secret, and that does hit differently now. Um, it absolutely does. We have you know providers in states where abortion is now illegal, not even knowing what they can say to a patient in their offices. And so, you know, my hope in as I was revising this post Dobbs is that readers will have a new understanding for. Um, kind of the bravery uh, of these amazing workers, these, these well, I call them healthcare workers, who um, have this real call to service and activism, um, and what, what kind of risks they're really taking in order to help other people get the care that they need. You know, and also, we, we've talked a lot about Dobbs, but I think it's also important to point out, I started writing this, the early drafts of this all happened during the pandemic, when uh, although COVID was not tied to reproductive justice, we saw an enormous bravery um, and selflessness from our healthcare workers during that time, right? And so I think really watching that unfold was also really inspirational to me in writing this book. You know, I really saw the level on which people who have this kind of call to medical service follow it and and with, with like it enormous courage and care. So all the characters in the book are fictional. We as the reader get POVs from three of them, Veronica, Patty, and Margaret, and their stories intersect with each other and with the cast of other characters that are in the in the larger story. Did you know early on you wanted to, to focus on, on three voices, or did you play around with adding more? You know, it's amazing to me now to answer this question, but yes, like these three characters, Veronica, Patty, and Margaret, kind of like presented themselves to me 
almost right away. Um, I, I, you know, in the case of Veronica, I knew that I really definitely wanted to write one of the perspectives from one of the founders and providers on the Jane, on the Jane staff. I also knew that I wanted Veronica to have an old friend who might not agree with some of her choices and what, and, and for her to be keeping this secret about what she's doing from this very close old friend. Hence, Patty. Um, and then I also knew that I wanted to have a character who was not yet married and having uh, and a mother, um, unlike Patty and Veronica are both wives and mothers. I, and I wanted her to have a, a promising career, um, but also to be involved with Jane. And that's Margaret. Um, and, you know, that was sort of my initial ideas for those three characters, but then everything else about those three characters really evolved over, over many, many drafts of this novel. Because, you know, you mentioned that this is, this is, these are not real women. They're entirely fictional, which is different from my first three historical novels. My first three historical novels were about real women. Um, so making these characters up out of whole cloth kind of, it took me a few drafts to really get their, their backstories and personalities in place. Sure. Yeah, I was very drawn into Veronica and Patty's relationship. That's a big part of the book. Uh, longtime friends who are gradually drifting apart, though they remain connected because they have kids the same age. And then there, there does seem to be a genuine desire on both their parts to maintain this friendship. However, there's also some uh, growing divisions, which you alluded to. I think we all can relate to that we all have friends when we're young and it can be hard to maintain those relationships over time and it got me thinking about you know some of us might have friends on different sides of the political spectrum it feels like it was easier to maintain those friendships in different you know in years past and leave politics out of it there were people grow up with you know don't bring politics and religion to the the dinner table but when i think about this current moment it, it feels harder if you know somebody in your life has different political values, it, it just feels harder to, to maybe maintain those friendships. Just wanted to get your thoughts on, do you feel like that's something that's changed? You know, so I'm 48 years old. I was born in 1975. And you know, so my parents really were young adults all through the tumultuous years of the 1960s and you know early 70s. And I remember my parents talking about dinner table conversations with their with their parents about, in particular, Vietnam and, you know, how just incredibly divisive that issue really was to families. And, you know, that slogan, the personal is political. I think that was so true for the women's movement, because the, in, the women for the women's movement was all about what was happening in the kitchen in the bedroom. It was, you know, they had, you know, the feminists of that era really felt like they had to sort out some of this domestic stuff before they could even begin to tackle boardrooms and, and everything else. So I, you know, I, I'm not sure. I think my, my very strong sense is that some these hot button issues have been divisive. They were divisive then and they're divisive now. And I, and I think that one of the great challenges for these characters in the 70s and for us now is to find the common ground. Something that I said in my author's note is that, you know, that I really hope people can take away from the book is that there's no them. It's all us. You know, it's really, we are all really in this together. And if to the extent to which we can find the commonalities in our points of view, that is the path forward. And, and I, I feel like I got to explore 
that desire, that desire to have, to find the common ground in the friendship of Patty and Veronica. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm talking with author Carrie Mayer about her new book, All You Have to Do is Call. Did you have an ending in mind, or did that evolve as you wrote? Uh, that's also a good question. It was a moving target. I, I did know this is a spoiler, but it's also very present in the history. Um, so, you know, the women of Jane in real life are arrested in 1972. So I knew that that was something I was kind of writing toward. And in very early drafts, it was the central thing that I was writing toward. And then as the book evolved, it became less important. It was still going to be a major plot point, but how we got get there and what the fallout from it was became very different as I revised the book. And so then I, I don't want to do spoilers, so I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> right, right. No, I get that. I was just curious if maybe you had something in mind right when you started or if it kind of changed and it sounds like there was some shifts. Yeah. The Real Life Jane Collective was based here in Chicago and lots of Chicago references in your book. Did you come here? Did you research? I did. Um, so, you know, I'll just be completely upfront. I grew up in California and I've lived on the East Coast of most of my adult life. I lived in New York and Connecticut and now I live in Massachusetts. And so, but I did go to Chicago. I think it's, it's always been really important to me to go to the places that I'm writing about. I really, I believe... I don't do I'm I don't think that my books are very description heavy, but I do think setting is important. And Chicago, uh I didn't realize actually how enormous Chicago was geographically till I got there. <laughs> and I was in very good hands. My friend Renee Rosen, who's a lifetime Chicagoan, um gave me a tour and let me stay at her place. And her fiance and some friends of theirs gave me a tour who, who teach um, somebody's a professor at the um, University of Chicago campus gave me a tour. And, you know, these are people who um, were part of the campus life, you know, almost as far back as when I was writing. So I got some really great um, firsthand accounts of what the campus would have been like at this time, walked around, took a lot of pictures. I read some books about Chicago um, at this, you know, at this moment in history. But, you know, I think one of the things I also learned about Chicago is how um, I think appropriately protective you all are of your fair city. Um, so I, I really, you know, Margaret is the outsider character in the book. So I decided that it was probably best and safest for my nervous system and the readers <laughs> to give her the descriptions of Chicago. Cause she could kind of see Chicago. Like I saw it through the eyes of like sort of wide eyed. Wow. What an amazing city. Whereas, you know, Veronica and, and Patty, because they grew up in the suburbs, they would have, I think, quite naturally taken a lot of it for granted. So that's how I that's how I wound up approaching the setting. A couple references made me smile. Uh, Gabe wants to expose Margaret to Italian beefs. So that's a, yes. a rite of passage for anyone who's come into town. There's also, this is like really like a deep cut, but there's a brief mention of Margaret wanting to to go shop in Old Town to get some plates. Was that a Crate and Barrel reference? No. Is, okay. is there a Crate and Barrel? I, I think of Old Town as like, so I did, I spent an afternoon in Old Town and got an ice cream cone up there at uh, Jenny's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, my exposure to Old Town is that it's this cool, artsy, boutique-y neighborhood. So I imagined her going there 
and like seeing those plates in one of those boutiques. Totally makes sense. No, the original okay. the original Crate and Barrel was started in in Old Town, so I'm like maybe this is just like even like a, oh a little gosh. Easter egg because it would have been. I a... pretend now. <laughs> <my answer? laughs> you can pretend from now on, and when you talk to people, um, but I doubt anyone else would pick up on that. I think I don't know why um, I, that came to mind for me for some reason. Weird. I, I Absolutely love that. One of like the the quotes I I take it slightly out of context, but Milan Kundera, may he rest in peace, um, in his art of the novel said, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, "Your fiction should be smarter than you are." And there we go. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm from this area. Chicago has, uh, I think, these days has a re- reputation of being very progressive. Um, But this is still the Midwest, so reading uh, about the environment that the Jane Collective operated in uh, was really interesting to me. Any evidence that groups like this were operating in other parts of the country? You know, that's such a good question. And I did actually initially toy with setting this in a different city altogether, but for lots of reasons decided to send it, set it it, where it actually went down. Yes, there were there were Jane like organizations in um, in other places, but nothing on this scale. You know, um, there were safe providers in most in a lot of major cities. There's sort of a famous one in Brooklyn and another famous one in San Francisco. But the scale of Jane is truly unique. I mean, they're you know, they, they couldn't for, you know, safety and legal reasons keep great records. But, you know, the estimates are more than 10,000 safely provided abortions that they either referred or provided themselves over a period of, you know, a few years, which is really remarkable. Carrie, really enjoyed the book. Thanks so much for making time to talk to me. Thank you again for having me on. It was a real treat to get to talk to you about the book in Chicago. That's author Carrie Mayer. Her novel, All You Have to Do is Call, is available everywhere books are sold. Mayer will be in Chicago on Tuesday, September 26th at the Bookseller in the Lincoln Square neighborhood for an in-person event. You can find out more information at booksellerinc.com. You're tuned into the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Books will likely be written about the tumultuous nature of the summer of 2020. A quick refresher if you've blocked it out. We were, of course, still navigating the COVID pandemic. Then the murder of George Floyd on May 25th sparked a social justice reckoning. The ripple effects of the tragedy and ensuing protests impacted a number of sectors, including the arts and culture landscape. Nationwide and here locally, a number of leading institutions announced commitments to improving equity. But did anything come of those public declarations? A new report outlines the results of a survey that aimed to tackle that question and others. The report, titled Work Remains to be Done, was released by Enrich Chicago last week. Enrich Chicago is committed to advancing anti-racist transformation and dismantling systemic racism in the arts and culture sector. This is Enrich Chicago director Nina Sanchez. I caught up with her to talk about the report's findings and her organization's efforts over the past nine years. 
There was a lot of talk. I've seen some stories over the past week, a lot of talk about the the summer of 2020, but Enrich Chicago actually started its work in in 2014? That's correct. Enrich Chicago came together um, initially in 2014 as an informal uh, collective of leaders across the arts and culture space in the city that spanned uh, cultural organizations and arts presenters, as well as individuals who represented the philanthropic community and in particular foundations. So clearly there was this need, uh, this void in the, the local arts and culture landscape. Uh, how did the, the murder of George Floyd and the ensuing fallout impact the, the organization? You know, one thing that's really interesting about um, our current context is what is different for Enrich now in 2023 and, and what was different in 2020 was that the landscape had shifted remarkably. When Enrich Chicago was founded, it was not common to hear language about racial equity, uh, anti-racism, or anti-oppression, or even to discuss uh, the need to pay attention to systemic solutions and interventions for uh, the inequity we see, not just in arts and culture, but in every sector here in the United States. And what has happened is that Uh, these words and ideas and frameworks have really come into um, broader access. And that really peaked um, following the murder of George Floyd. We, I think, collectively saw what books ended up on a bestseller list, right? So now many more individuals have access to these ideas and to these histories and these hidden stories that um, were not commonly uh, exposed to um, or learn about within our schooling settings, our work environments, and elsewhere. A new report outlining the results of a recent survey of Enriched Chicago member organizations and the BIPOC people that work for them was released last week, and we're going to look at some of the those results. Uh, but first, what were you hoping to come away with f- from this survey? So the, the survey, I view the survey as just one more tool for us to um, better understand the impact of our work and the ways that enrich Chicago, an institution that exists to support learning, to exist to support skill building, and uh, building a field of leaders committed to anti-racism and anti-oppression. How we can better partner with both our member institutions and the arts and culture sector um, at large. And so uh, we decided to use this survey to understand what are the experiences of BIPOC people in the arts and culture space right now. Is there any difference to how they might have been feeling 10 years ago? Um, Are there any specific learnings um, that we might glean from their sharing with us to uh, make some different decisions about where and how we spend our time within enriched programming, um, how we might better coach and assist our members um, in terms of the work that they're doing, and what recommendations more broadly we could offer to any institution in arts and culture, whether they're formally engaged within the Chicago or not, to to do a bit more, um, to make more visible um, the racial equity work that many, many institutions have taken on. And we believe that those intentions are good. We believe that often there is work happening. And I think that the research and the findings connected to the research really illuminate the extent to which we need to really be more external uh, and proactive in communicating the work that we are taking on, what we're learning along the way, taking responsibility for our shortcomings, and committing to um, moving forward in a different direction to try to repair um, any harm that's being caused. 
If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the arts section. I'm talking with Enrich Chicago director Nina Sanchez about her organization's new report that looks at efforts to improve equity in the local arts and culture landscape. So when I, I looked at the report, one of the first things that stuck out to me was the number of arts organizations that implemented an action plan. So we saw a lot of statements in the summer of 2020, a lot of things posted on websites and social media. But as far as action, it, the survey revealed maybe it, it didn't go as far as hoped. That's correct. The survey um, revealed that, that while there were statements, there wasn't a complementary set of actions to make real the spirit of those statements. And as one respondent to the survey put it, don't just talk about it, do something about it. And I think that that is pretty much sums, sums it up <laughs> uh, for this survey, I think, and also a lot of other um, research projects like this. There is often a gap between our, our stated aspirations and the action steps that are taken. Some of this has to do with the fact that this work is long-term and generational, right? There were people before us taking on these issues. There are going to be people after us taking on these issues. And what we want to encourage is, yes, we want care, we want thoughtfulness, but we also want a bias toward action. So as you consider the whole set of options you have to change something about the culture of your organization, the policies of your organization, and the practices of your organization, what is it that you can um, implement in the immediate future? What is within your power now that you can act on? And we're certain that there is something, and uh, we want to continue to encourage people to, um, to, to leverage whatever small actions they can take, um, to be uh, transparent about those actions, to communicate those actions out to their uh, staff community and also the community at large um, that many of our institutions endeavor to partner with and support so that um, that can be visible. So you, because of the, your role within Rich Chicago, I would imagine you have your finger on the pulse of, of what's going on. Was there anything in the report that surprised you? I don't know that there was anything that um, was brand new to me, but I was struck by this perception of our BIPOC colleagues in the arts around the role of the executive leader in advancing racial equity um, efforts within their institution. And also, I was really pleased to see the level of work that our research team brought to this analysis to be able to, to point out with great specificity the differentiated ways people are impacted across multiple lines of identity. Right, so we were able to understand what a cisgender Latina woman might experience in her workplace. And we also came to a greater understanding of how some of these issues of workplace discrimination or microaggression or, or sense of belonging um, really fall short for people who identify as Black and LGBTQIA+. And so those were two pieces of learning from this uh, research that um, I really appreciated being pulled out and elaborated upon. So it's not like all BIPOC workers, it's like a monolith. There's like individual experiences within this like subgroup. That's right. I think that while as in Rich, we commit to um, a race explicit analysis and race explicit interventions, but we don't wish our analysis and interventions to be race exclusive. Because while we know that our racial identity um, has an outsized role in our life outcomes, our workplace mobility, and so on, 
uh, we know that, that we are more than just our race, that, that our gender, our sexual identity, our class status, educational attainment all play a role in our ability to successfully navigate these institutions. So I saw some of the, the recommendations, uh, which listeners can find uh, at enrichshy.org. They can find the, the whole report there. What came through to me, and I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but essentially there, there needs to be a better commitment from arts organizations uh, to equity and that it, it should be more transparent. That, that is accurate. I think that we want to support our member organizations and encourage people in the arts and culture sector at large to really contemplate and consider the ways they are forthcoming and public, publicly transparent with not just their, their vision for the future, their aspirations for the future, but the work that they're actually doing. And to make a regular practice of this, right, to give regular updates, to not to pat ourselves on the back, <laughs> but to, um, to share in our learning, right? When we, when, we, when we engage in this kind of behavior, a transparent, regular, and accountable communication, that is how ultimately we will build trust and gain trust with the most impacted communities. Uh, and that is our BIPOC community in Chicago. How uh, absent that, it will continue to be work that maybe, although it exists, is not accessible and in many ways will not be impactful to those communities. So number one is having that open, external, and regular communication as a matter of organizational practice. In the same way they would make a report to their board in the same way they create uh, institutions create an annual report to their donors and patrons, they should speak to these issues. I know it's a complicated subject and there's lots of factors involved, but as far as some of the issues outlined in the, the report, is there some threads as far as like what are some of the barriers that are preventing some arts organizations from taking the type of actions that are recommended? I think some of the barriers um, have to do with factors that are primarily external, right? A public discourse that is widely polarized, um, a sense of scarcity of resources in a sector that is undergoing some monumental changes uh, in this late pandemic stage that we're in, um, a sense of commitment to survival and self-preservation rather than evolution. And that means that we're holding the greatest amount of accountability to our board and to our patrons. And at many of these institutions, uh, these entities don't necessarily reflect the, the racial diversity of our city, the class diversity of our city. And so um, I think those are all factors that, that push on this work, that are intentional with this work, despite our best intentions. And uh, that also then gets confounded with this idea that we actually don't know how to do this. Right. And that um, and that this this requires not just doing differently, but being different. Right. It means getting to the core of how we have been conditioned and raised up to act and lead in the United States context, which is very much about individualism, which is very much about enforcing a binary of thought and ideas, which is very much about power over instead of power with. And these are all factors that really weigh on this work and make it um, make it difficult. And again, I will say, despite that, there have been people who have been doing this and literally lives on the line to do this work and advance this work. And that while a, a public discourse becomes widely polarized, the sense is that 
racial equity, anti-racism, and racial justice is no longer a priority. We need to remember that for Black, Indigenous, people of color, it is always a priority. It is always a matter of daily survival. And that is what we are called to respond to. As far as what's next, will Enrich Chicago use this report to engage its members? Yes, this report is really important for Enrich Chicago as its own institution and also um, with our work with our um, sector-wide collaborators. We want to be intentional um, and put at the forefront this sense of accountability to our impacted communities. And so much of what we're seeing in this report and the recommendations um, is going to guide our upcoming conversations with our current membership. It's going to guide uh, a, a redesign of those programs and supports so that we become increasingly focused um, around not just some of these recommendations, but in particular looking at um, shared areas of collective impact so that um, we can give ourselves a runway uh, in which we say, collectively, we agree that this is our number one priority for our racial equity work. We're going to learn together. We're going to work together. We're going to uh, lean on one another. And three years from now, take, a, take stock again. Where are we today? Is it different than it was three years ago? What have we learned? And what could we share as learning that others may adopt into their own institutional practice? Nina Sanchez is the director of Enrich Chicago. Thanks so much for making time to talk with me. Thank you so much, Gary. It was a pleasure. That was Nina Sanchez. You can look at the organization's new report, Work Remains to be Done, by visiting enrichshy.org. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website, theartssection.org. You can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. Everybody.